0: It was a lot of fun. We were all pretty young, and no one had ever done anything like this before. The
1: internet access has started to really kick into gear, and ESPN was going to ride that wave.
2: What it represents to me is a big chunk of my life.
1: It's been a rocket ship. There was kind of a perfect storm
3: to happen. It's the most exciting thing since the Nuremberg Press.
4: ESPN, to me, has really been at the forefront of digital. I think that what they did with ESPN.com is far ahead of what other networks did. That's a revolution, in my opinion. It was both this incredible
5: sense of of ambition doing something that had never been done before without any blueprints but it was also this incredible sense of trepidation because you were doing something that had
2: never been done before without a blueprint ESPN.com at 20 how the internet has changed the delivery and consumption of sports
6: I'm Jamel Hill and I'm here with my partner in crime Michael Smith and over the next hour we're going to hear from some of the most influential voices, and crafting the ESPN.com that we have here today. The first person we are now honored to have in studio with us is the president of ESPN, John Skipper. And, John, let's start simple. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine. How were you consuming sports before the advent of the Internet?
7: Well, I mostly consumed it by watching Jefferson Pilot, which is what uh, the network that carried uh, ACC basketball. I have a good story for you. I moved to New York in 1978 well before the Internet, of course. And I was a big North Carolina Tar Heel fan, as you know. And in those days, the only way to check scores in progress was to call the score line. I forget what it was called, but it, you had an 800 number you called, and they, on a continuous, updated every three or four-minute cycle, read the scores. I think it was called Sports Phone. Sports Phone, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay. Thank okay. you, you. Sports learning. Phone. Yeah. And, of course, if your team was ranked. North Carolina in those days was always ranked in the top five or ten, so you got the score, update every three or four minutes. So, And there was another funny thing that existed at that time. There were no cell phones, mobile phones, so I went to the corner. I lived at 104th and West End Avenue. So I went to the corner of the street at 103rd and Broadway. And Broadway, 103rd was a tough neighborhood at the time. Um, And this was uh, late 70s, early 80s, so I took a, a fistful of quarters, and about every five minutes, I'd put a quarter in the pay phone and dial up sports phone and get the scores. Oh, wow. Wow, is right.
6: That was some serious commitment.
7: It was some serious commitment. Worse than that, pretty soon, a guy came up to me with a very menacing look on his face, and he said, you better stay the blank off of my office <laughs> phone here, or you're going to be in trouble. And he was dealing illegal What's substances, illegal yeah. and oh, his right. customers were calling yeah, was, that phone he was to a street put their orders in, as they call him. and here was some nutty... Country bumpkin from North Carolina on his phone. But go back to your question. Uh, In those days, you followed sports with the newspaper. I grew up in the days where you got one college football game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Internet, of course, was a boon to where you could follow your sports real time. And whereas ESPN as a company uh, pioneered the 24-7 sports networks, you always knew you could cut the network on and watch some sports. But you couldn't necessarily watch your team. There was no bottom line in those days. Sports Center itself was only on, you know, at appointment viewing at 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock. The internet blew everything apart to where you could follow your team in real time
8: all the time and get score updates, et cetera, et cetera. I struggled to, the ESPN.com, we are 20 years, so that's more than half my life. So I would have been 15. I struggled to remember the days of dial up. Like nowadays, mm-hmm. If a page doesn't open or doesn't load immediately, I get frustrated. I'm calling IT. Like, uh-huh. what's going on? I mean, can you kind of just take us back to the to the beginning uh, of of ESPN.com and and what the internet was like then and, and some of the some of the struggles, some of the issues that presented themselves yeah. when you first coming up with this? I can't take you back to the beginning. I, I
7: came onto the scene in two thousand. Uh and two thousand was still the uh the time of the HTML Text dial up connection. Mm-hmm. And I came from a magazine print background. So the first thing I did was work with the then current art director, a fellow named Dan Benshoff, who still is here. So I went to Dan and said, we got to redesign this. This, this looks terrible. It's ugly. We're, you know, I want to put some new typefaces in. I want to put some photographs in. We need to, we need to make it look better. So Dan said, well, wait, wait a minute. No, 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 wait. And let's go. We're going to make it look better. So I forced Dan, and I remember many evenings, late evenings in Seattle in his office saying, no, put, put a big picture here. Along here, we're going to put the, we're going to put the news stories. Along this side, we're going to put standings and other stuff. He mocked it up for me. They, they uh, put it in the system. John Zare at the time was the head of technology. And they timed it, and it took like two minutes and thirty seconds to load. They said so every time somebody somebody yeah. logs on ESPN.com, two and a half minutes later they're going to get your beautiful uh, yeah. new new uh, page. Dan and I didn't work to get it down. We got it down to two. Got, and I, I don't think we got it past about a minute twenty. Wow. And I said, "That's what we're going to do, guys. I know it's awful, but faster speeds are coming." And we're going to go ahead and plan for faster speeds. Because yeah, we had to wait a minute 20 nowadays. <laughs> no, you know. man, by the way, it did drive people crazy. Yeah. We got lots and lots of complaints. But, of course, starting in those days, you know, you had the demise of dial-up, the beginning of broadband. Broadband came along in the early 2000s. And we were by far the first Internet site, sports Internet site, ready for that. And we were using photographs. And we had a fixed placement advertisements. A big ad. So we were ready for sort of the next gen, which is one of the great lessons to me from the internet, which we still continue to practice here, right? At ESPN, we get ready for apps or we get ready for the next generation iPhone or iPad and don't wait for it to happen before we're ready with, with good content on it.
6: Yeah. But even at the time, um, in those early days, I mean, of course, in hindsight, everybody always has a different reflection, but I mean, was there any sense did you feel at all that like this ESPN.com is really about to be maybe not predict exactly where it is today, but this is really going to be our next biggest wave?
7: No, I'm not sure. Um, when I came there in 2000, I didn't come there on a, a, a messianic mission, right? I came there because I was given the job and I concentrated on making it better. Right? I concentrated on making it look better, read better. We went out and we hired good writers. You know, that's where we hired Ralph Wiley and David Halberstam and Hunter Thompson, Bill Simmons. Uh, We hired, you know, we began to use photography. We did actually put some typefaces on it, although I realized that was really tough in the internet in those days. We made it better first. And then the second thing we did was the metric in those days was all about uniques. How many people are logging on? So then we went and, and worked on the traffic. Now the better content drove traffic, but we also did a deal with Microsoft network. You kind of look at the year by year. I noticed it in the story that was out today and we got four million, four million, six million, five million, seven million. And it suddenly goes 12, 14, 16. And that was the Microsoft deal where we suddenly became the sports content on Microsoft. They had many, many more users than we had. And that sort of rocketed us. Up. so I don't think to your question but we didn't know this is going to be an enormous part of our future and usage and we have to be there I just went in sort of doing the job of make it better make the ratings and the sort of metric use in the internet make that go up uh, that happened I don't think it was really till well 2006 seven or eight where you suddenly realized, what a big business and how important it was going to
6: be. Well, it's funny you should say that because in '06 something really monumental happened.
8: Changed ESPN. Well, you came to work. You hired me. There you, oh, four. Me? No, <laughs> well, there
6: you four. go. No what? Oh, four. You, oh, oh, four. Oh, from Michael, oh, six oh six four. Oh, four. We got out. uh You got out a little bit even earlier than that. Uh, but
8: you were, the, you, were, you were at the paper. I, I was at
6: the Orlando Sentinel.
8: And you, Michael, were? I was at the Boston Globe. Yeah. yeah. I, I came in 04. In 2004, and yes, I was the precursor to the real game changer, which was Jamel. <laughs> yeah. But no, um, I remember being at the Boston Globe. In our newsroom, Boston.com was about four people at a small pod. Right. We just ignored it. I never wrote for Boston.com. Came aboard in 04 to write for ESPN.com. And at that point, you, John, this will blow you away. You guys have four people covering the NFL for ESPN.com. Right. Unbelievable. Mort, Clayton, yeah. Len Pascarelli, and me. Yeah. Now you have somebody for every team. I know. But
7: <laughs> the, the, the four that's actually more profound there is that the Boston Globe had four people. I mean, that was a lot. In, but <laughs> yeah. in 2004, yeah. Yeah. And, and look, when I got there, I, I started the magazine in 98. I went to ESPN.com because I asked for digital experience because – You could tell. I didn't know Jamel was going to be as important as it was. You could tell that digital was going to was going to replace a lot of print. You didn't think it was going to replace television, but you thought it's going to replace print. So the boss—that's a cautionary tale. The fact that the Globe and the Times, the the Times, the Free Press, the Morning News—these guys all resisted it. Where Steve Bornstein, uh, president before George. Dick Glover, who we hired to do this, these guys embraced the internet, yeah. went out and and worked with Starwave to launch in '94. Before I, well, before I was here, uh, so we didn't ignore it. We didn't know how important it was going to be, but we were ready. Right when it did become important.
6: Well, that was the thing with newspapers; they sort of treated the internet like a fad, right. and right. Um, obviously we can see where it is today. So when you I, people have a hard time believing this about me and about either one of us that we were actually hired as writers. I mean, right. I was hired to be a general. Assignment sports columnist for ESPN.com. And when I got here, page two was the biggest thing. You know, you had Simmons, uh, still writing. I think Jason Whitlock was still, mm-hmm. was writing for page two at the time. All these creative, funny, um, you know, kind of writers. And I I look at it now and it's like, wow, you know, it's amazing just how culturally significant uh, that was. Um, Just talk about that that evolution because, as you mentioned, you had Hunter S. Thompson, Mm -hmm. Ralph Wiley. Like, what was sort of the thought process behind starting this really unique creative space for writers?
7: Well, remember, my partner in this was John Walsh, uh, and I was uh, from the magazine book publishing business. So we just thought you have to hire Good writers, mm-hmm. but they get,
6: were but they're very non-traditional.
7: But, well, but it, it was a little bit of magazine, more magazine thinking in some ways than newspaper thinking. In fact, at the time, there was a, a good fellow named John Marvel was kind of in charge of uh, you know the story content, and most of the people being hired were newspaper columnists. And the idea was, gee, newspapers will translate better because the because di- the internet's a daily medium; it's a news medium. And John Walsh uh, helped me see that it can also be a feature journalism medium, right? There's no reason. People will read long form, and I still believe this, online. I do think that a printed magazine is still in some ways the most pleasant way to read a long story. But you can, the the, the um, advantage you have online is infinite space without the cost of paper and ink which is why long-form really now exists online. If you look at what newspapers do now, they can't afford to do significant long-form investigative magazines uh, are declining in terms of what they can produce and do. So the appropriate medium to do long-form now is is the Internet. And I think, again, mostly thanks to my friend John,
8: I think we saw earlier that that's where that was going to go was online. A couple months minutes ago, you, uh, you brought up, You know, just the iPhone and you literally can consume everything ESPN on your phone, on your mobile device nowadays. Really fascinating how that's evolved. Uh, I remember the ESPN phone. (laughs) I I have
6: one. You still got it? Keith (laughs) Overman gave me his.
8: You got to bring that back. (laughs)
6: That, <laughs> yeah, we,
8: probably,
7: we, we probably won't bring that back. <laughs> I, the ESPN phone now is whatever phone you happen to have. Okay, well, <laughs> download much. the app, and it's an ESPN it's phone. A, and it's an amazing app. I mean, Posner I, I, you know, yeah. and Ryan Spoon and those guys have done a great job. But that was a the lesson there. We did the phone. We don't want to be in the hardware business or mm-hmm. the distribution business. Gotcha. And we briefly lost our minds and <laughs> thought we did want to be. I kind of cool for a second, but when did you but realize there's the nothing day? cooler than that app? No, on, right. a, on, the, on, a, on an iPhone. We, we could
6: put the ESPN phone right in the box for like ESPN Hollywood, <laughs> like oh, things yeah, that didn't right. quite yeah. work out.
8: That when well. did you know this would be a game changer, though?
7: <laughs> the phone, I, yeah. I think you know, I think we knew pretty early, early on for smartphones and for tablets that the quality of the screen and how well you could see and the amount of information you could carry with you, uh, that that would be a pretty significant matter. You know, I can't remember when we started to watch ESPN, but we started, when you ask the question when, Mm -hmm. when was 2004, 2005? Mm -hmm. Because the rights deals we did starting in the fall of 2005, we went to get all of the rights we got for any device. Because it did occur, George was... president then, and and George had the smarts to sort of see that. At this point, we're no longer buying television. We're buying content to distribute on whatever platform. ESPN, I'm proud to say, was the first uh, television network that saw what was going to happen, and we're the first network to be able to distribute our content on every platform and the first network to have an authenticated television signal so that if you have a television subscription, you can get it on whatever uh, device you want to watch it on. Now, the it, it is smart that the people it is appropriate that the people running a sports network would realize that because no content works better than content you have to watch live. So sports is what really drives uh, any kind of uh, television content yeah. online. Most of what's online is disruptive to television. It doesn't have to be disruptive in the case of ESPN.
6: Well, that – it's funny you use the word disruptive because – um Just think about how we consume highlights now versus how we did before because uh, mobile has changed that completely. And um, as big of a boon that the Internet has been and certainly with what we've done in the digital space, is it seen as a compliment to the TV side or is it seen as a competition to it?
7: Well, I think it's a mistake to think of it as competition because as long as people are consuming ESPN content, however they want to consume it, it works out fine for us. We just have to figure out how to make it work out, right? You have platforms and media that are easier to make money off of than others. Now, you can't lead that to believe that you can make people consume on the platforms that are the easiest for you to make money on. You have to let people consume on whatever platform they want to consume on and figure out how to make money on that platform. So that philosophically is what we do. Um, and the consumption of sports goes up. Right. That is one thing that that we figured out early and already Bulgren sort of helped us figure it out out of research in New York is these things forget whether they're complementary. They, they actually self-reinforce each other. So if you watch more content, uh, ESPN content online, you watch more television. If you watch more television, you listen to more radio. So all of these things tend to be self-reinforcing. Uh, as long as we make sure that the content they get is on ESPN. ESPN was the ultimate disruptor, right? Before we came along, everybody watched sports on NBC Sports and CBS Sports, and uh, uh, and those companies famously did just what you said, which is they worried about whether well, this cable TV would be competition as opposed to going, well, gee, it's an opportunity yeah. for people to watch more of our sports on a new platform. And that is a, a philosophy we have to continue to do
8: as new things come along what about just the the internet competition as with as with television where you know you saw cable sports networks popping up uh, trying to compete likewise you know the Yahoos of the world you know cbs.com NBCSports.com, com, so on and so forth uh, how do you continue to stay ahead of, of, of them is it just outnumbering with a vast army of writers or is it just producing that much higher quality content? where, hey, we still want ESPN-level content, so that's Mm why we're going to go to .com versus Mm -hmm. somewhere else. Or just hire them away from them. (laughs) Look,
7: all those things are smart. The first thing you do in sports, by the way, sports is the most defensible segment of media because there is exclusivity. So if we have certain content exclusively, that allows you to keep your fans with you. But, first of all, having an aggregation of sports rights for all platforms provides a great defense. The great offense, of course, is having superior content Mm -hmm. to anybody else, right? Our fantasy game is the best fantasy game. So so it's not coincidental that more people use our fantasy game than anybody else. Our app for sports is the best app for sports. So it's not coincidental. We also have on that app exclusive highlights that other people don't have. Plus, we have better facilities. We have better skills at cutting highlights. To your point before, Jamel, about look how people change how they consume highlights. But we didn't resist that. We took our ongoing advantage in understanding how to make highlights with the Sports Center. We understood how to adapt those highlights. Because they have to be different. Sometimes they have to be shorter. They have to be quicker, turn around. So we're producing exclusive content, better content. We do produce more content than anybody else, and I think that matters.
6: But, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's much more personalized. Right. That That's the experience. Yeah. It's become that way. And among the many transitions, we've seen – Happened uh, from ESPN.com and obviously from a, a consumer standpoint is the the merging with ESPN, the magazine, mm-hmm. because when I first got here, those were seen as completely separate, you know, uh-huh. deals. And uh, it was amazing how much that has changed or singing like when I did the, the piece on Janae Rice, the merging. Mm-hmm and melding between .com and and the magazine is much different than it was before. What was sort of the thought process behind making those products, bringing them closer together? The the general
7: thought process around all of the sort of idea of having a single content group is that our fans don't make a distinction that there's a group of people doing a magazine and a group of people doing uh, ESPN.com and a group of people doing ESPN1 and a group of people doing the SEC Network. They think ESPN does all those things. So we've tried to make it as um, transparent as uh, possible that content just comes from ESPN and, and, and they're just platforms. We're just looking to distribute our content on the best platform for that content. And frankly, we're use, looking to use the content multiple times. Uh, uh, as uh, I, I know from experience that it's impossible to consume all the ESPN content. We get ourselves carried away sometimes, right? No, Gee, not geez. us. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, you know, we produced a feature and it ran on SportsCenter. Well, I don't want to put that in my show, and I don't think we want to do a story about that in com. It's like a fraction of our fans view any portion of our content, right? We have 115 million people a week, uh, and yet the average SportsCenter, you know, has a million to two million people watching, and the average, uh, you know, com every day there's maybe 20 million people. But that means there's 80 million people who didn't see it, mm-hmm. uh, who might be interested in it. So it's distributing it to as many places as possible, getting the best use out of it, and just being – not not being um, siloed,
8: right, where all you care about the magazine is doing magazine stories. It's funny you said that because uh, remember when E 60 first launched, his launch? Yeah. Uh, and was that 07? Uh, the concept of doing companion pieces – was foreign. Yeah. Now it's common sense. You know what I mean? But back then it was like, well you mean we gotta write a piece to go along with the story on television? Like what is this dot com well, thing we're trying to Well you think with?
7: about it, when you if you, you watch even a very well produced television piece of seven or eight or nine minutes, um generally if it's good enough piece, you want to know more. Right, so you have the companion piece. I've I've never watched a great piece that I didn't think, gee, I'd like to hear from somebody else, or I wish I understood a little background, or I had an illustration that laid out something I didn't quite understand in the thirty seconds that a piece could give it on television. Um, and then when you write a great piece on tele, uh, for the magazine, you want it to come alive, right? You want to see those people. It's it's you know one of my favorite magazines uh, is the New Yorker. And, and if I could change anything within New Yorker, it would be like anytime there's a story, I want to see maps. I want to see charts. I want to see people so that I don't have to just look at text and imagine, you know, how the Balkans, you know, are divided. You know, I want to see an illustration of it. So on television, you can only do so much in a piece. You can only do so much.
8: When you open up ESPN.com, what are you going to say to yourself? I want to see more of this. Uh, well, I, you know, what I mostly want to
7: see more of is. Very well-written, high-quality stories. Uh, you do want to see it load well. I still care that it looks great. I mean, one thing I like about the new ESPN.com is aesthetically it's very pleasing. It's simple. It's elegant. Uh, it's easy to navigate. The hardest problem that I could, whenever I was managing ESPN.com, the thing I never made, personally, I never managed to make much of a contribution to is the navigation and being able to find all the stuff. The greatest single frustration I still have is... I'll get an email from somebody saying I I got a great piece coming up on Tuesday. I'll be busy by Friday. I'll take the email. I'll go, oh, I'm gonna go on now and find it.
8: Um, and you can't find it. Um, <laughs> that was something that used to frustrate us. Yeah. As writers, was getting feel like you get lost. Yep. On yeah. On ESPN.com, but the real estate wasn't. Yeah. there. And you guys actually gave me something I could
7: tell guys ESPN.com they got to do. They got to fix the search. The search yeah. is not good. Yeah. So we produce all this great content. You'd. You tap in, you know, a story you wrote, Jamel, and and you can't find it. Yeah. Um. So there you go. That's the one thing I want to see. That. That's The one thing I want to see really, really good search.
6: Now you mentioned not being able, maybe our navigation aspect could use some improvement, but I think the combination of how social media has really help the digital space blossom because now it seems like everything is so shareable Mm -hmm. and so portable. How have you seen social media aid and complement the growth of ESPN.com over these last maybe decade or so?
7: Look, we mostly think of the more important social media platforms as places where we can distribute content. So it's up to us to figure out the right way to use those platforms to further the consumption of our own content. So you can see, for instance, with Twitter, We've actually done quite well with them by aggregating hashtags around big events we do and with embedding video in them. Uh, It doesn't give me uh, much of a thrill to see uh, tweeting just, you know, about nothing. What gives me a thrill is to see tweeting where we're sharing our content. So I think we got to use it to figure out how to further distribute our content, get people to tune into things, to pay attention to things. I think we do it pretty well. Once again, if you look at sort of that philosophy of let's adopt stuff, let's figure out how to make it work, we we've done that. I mean, we haven't resisted. We just did a big deal with Instagram, uh, which I think has been quite smart. So, are you on Twitter? I'm a consumer. I, I have a I have a I have an account. You I, watching? No, I'm watching. <laughs> I'm not tweeting. There's no benefit for me to tweet. There's no, no, it isn't either. Either it's so phony. I mean, when you see. CEOs who have a Twitter account that the, <laughs> that the communications department is filling up that feels phony to me, and there's no benefit for me to to
8: put personal opinions right. uh, or, you flourish on the uh, gram though, huh? You can show us what you're doing on vacation. No, it's no, there's no <laughs> point to it. I, I don't Flip need, jump like Tom Brady. I don't need this. that. I
7: don't need that. The the uh, as uh, a business person at this company, there are professional u- reasons for our company to use Twitter. Uh, I don't have – there's no incentive for me to personally – you like at John Skipper? No. I have no – no, <laughs> there's only downside for You're
6: me. You're not giving out that Twitter handle. Probably <laughs> no, private. There's only downside. <laughs>
7: there's only downside for me on, uh, on Twitter. And and generation – I'm just not of the generation that – you know, I have one of the best jobs in the world
8: uh, without being recognized. Right? What is? What are you most proud of? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. What are you most proud of about ESPN.com's first 20 years? uh I think I'm most
7: proud of the fact that it, ESPN.com has actually helped to keep ESPN at the center of the sports fans' experience. So we didn't miss that opportunity. There are a few places where a big company can be disrupted. It mostly is when a new platform or technology allows another company to flank you and take your central position of centrality with fans. Right? ESPN took the Sports Illustrated. And the broadcast networks—they were central to the sports fans' experience till ESPN came along. Well, had we not done ESPN.com, somebody else could have taken that position of centrality in the mm. sports
8: fans' experience, and we didn't let them do that. Was it just as important, not just to do it, but when you did it? Like, like well, I think it was you important. Kind of dragged your feet Again,
7: the Steve Bornstein and Dick Glover, I think, get the get the credit for not dragging their feet. They That's went cool. early. They went early, and they went strong, and uh, um. You know, we built upon that. So, yeah, it's a, you, you can't wait. Yeah.
6: Mm. So we've um, diced up the the first 20. Now I'm going to give you the tough question. What do you see us going with the next 20 years?
7: My personal experience for the next twenty years, I see myself sitting on a beach somewhere <laughs> with a very high power <laughs> tablet, posting you know, <laughs> no, but posting nothing, posting but nothing. but logging on to ESPN.com to keep up with the sports news. That's what I see for at least the last ten of the next twenty. Okay, we put it that way. Look, we just have to keep up, right? We got to keep making it better. And uh, one thing we've never done here is to to be complacent about our current position. Our goal here is John Kozner. And his staff do a fabulous job, but our goal is to get more share. It's like to grow. You know, we're we're tapping on close to 100 million uniques a month. We're about a third of all the sports consumed on the internet. And you know, I'd like to see us get to that 100 million. I'd like a to third
8: us, of all the sports consumed on the internet
7: It's in the is consumed on ESPN branded platforms. Uh, you know, our goal here is to continue to grow that share. What's your vision for page three? My vision for page three. I don't have a vision for page three. It was a good conceit, page two, because the point was the Internet was all about what was on the home page, right? And we were going, we got this other thing. So I don't know what the page three is, but it's another thing. Maybe the undefeated.com is page three, right? We've done a bunch of page threes, Grantland, Mm -hmm. 538, uh, W. Now we're going to do the undefeated, and and that's another nice page three where we have a chance to do something different uh, on the Internet.
6: Well, uh, I I certainly um – don't know what's going to happen in the next 20 years as long as you know our tv show maybe we can be doing it from a spaceship in a hammock
7: <laughs> with a dark and stormy <laughs> uh,
6: we we appreciate that well thank you uh john for joining us and explaining what has been a life-changing i think product for yeah. a lot of people suddenly changed our lives obviously yours too and I'm sure many people out there listening
7: thank you I appreciate it. up next part two of espn
2: at 20 How the internet has changed the delivery and consumption of sports.
0: It was a lot of fun. We were all pretty young and no one had ever done anything like this before. The internet
1: access started to really kick into gear and ESPN was going to ride that
2: wave. What it represents to me is a big chunk of my life. It's
1: been a rocket ship. There was kind of a perfect
2: storm to happen. It's the most
3: exciting thing since the
2: Nuremberg Press. You were doing something that had never been done before without a blueprint. ESPN.com
8: at 20. How the internet has changed the delivery and consumption of sports. So we just heard from some of the people who have made and are still making history right here in this space, which we call a digital space. And it wasn't that long ago where it scarcely existed. We're talking about the internet, which now delivers all of our shows that can be found on ESPN.com 20 years ago, Jamel. April 1st, 1995, that's the anniversary of the launch of ESPN.com.
6: And to honor that anniversary, which just happens to come on the same day as a major launch of ESPN.com. Now, we had a conversation with John Skipper about this anniversary and relaunch and what it's meant to him and his role in the big picture. Now we want to take a moment to go back to the origin.
8: The creation story, if you will, by some of the founding fathers who will tell us about how ESPN was originally able to merge with the Internet to create all the wonderful things that we're all now so happy to be a part of at ESPN.com today. The days before there actually was an ESPN.com, Jay. The days were a lot more dial tones and buzzing sounds and robotic voices saying, you got mail. In fact, don't you still have your AOL account?
6: I do. Don't hate on that. Look, it's still <laughs> just as useful then as it is now.
8: John
4: Orand, media reporter, Sports Business Journal. I remember being in college, and I, we'd be at the bar, and we used to ask the bartender to put one of the TV sets onto headline news because they were the, the only TV station that would scroll the scores at the bottom. And that, at the time, was the only way for us to keep up on out-of-town scores and find out. You know, who was winning and all of a sudden somebody would go from 10 points down to 5 points down.
5: My name is Patrick Stigman. I'm the vice president and editorial director for ESPN Digital and Print Media. I'm not that old, I don't think, in a relative sense, but when I first started my first newspaper job, I was filing stories on a Radio Shack TRS-80 laptop computer that uh, had the ability to hold something along the lines of about 2,000 characters. And I could write a story, and sometimes I'd have to file the story via acoustic couplers, uh, and I'd have to send half the story in so I could write the rest of it, because I didn't have enough memory on this laptop computer to be able to actually
2: send the, the information in. My name is Jeff Reese. I'm in the midst of uh, developing a new company. If you had a computer in your home in 1993, there was about a 2 or 3% chance, I think, that it was actually connected to something, to the outside world. 97% chance that it was kind of plugged into the wall like a toaster oven. The bandwidth constraints and the technological constraints were frustrating.
9: I'm Marie Donahue, the Executive Vice President of Global Strategy and Original Content at ESPN. I started in December of 1998 at Starway Ventures, the entity that produced ESPN.com under license from ESPN. I was very excited to be working in the early days of the Internet, but incredibly frustrated at the slow load times, even for text. I mean, forget about video. And a lot of us were still on dial-up, and it really was the prehistoric age of the Internet. Dick
10: lover and I'm currently the president and CEO of Funny or Die. November of 92, that's when I joined ESPN. I was hired to run what was then a brand new division. In fact, I was the sole employee of it. It was to look at what were some opportunities to really grow ESPN. One of the things that we set back then was sports information delivered by computer, was going to be important. That it was just obvious the computer was going to enable a lot of things.
0: My name's Mike Slade. I'm now a venture capital guy in Seattle. I've been a high-tech marketing and executive person for about 32 years now, ever since I came to work at Microsoft in 1983. When I was a junior in college, I started writing for the local paper. And while I was working there in college, the paper went electronic. So in 1978, it went from typewriters to a um, mini-computer-based computer based electronic publishing system with a screen with text in front of it it was the sixth paper in the united states to do so and it was a revelation because i would work nights helping the sports editor put the paper to bed instead of going to preppy keggers and um i had the entire ap sports wire in front of me in an interactive way in fall of 1978, I would stay up till 12.30 or 1 in the morning doing what everybody now does on ESPN.com. I'm guessing there were under two or 300 people in the United States who could do that then. All there was was most people just had typewriters or they had a sports section. And I got super excited about the notion of having kind of an unlimited sports section, a sports section with infinite size and always up to date that you could browse to your heart's content wherever and whenever. I went to Microsoft after Stanford Business School and kind of gave up my dream of being a sports writer. I was a fast sports writer, which was their ultimate compliment. I had nothing to do with quality. (laughs) Let's do with speed. So anyway, I got to work at Microsoft, and then Microsoft had a corporate account on this thing called CompuServe in 1986, and I think you could browse the AP Sportswire for about 4 bucks a minute. It was just insanely expensive because this was the days of Lexus, Nexus, and everything. And so I would use their corporate account and at 10 in the morning, I'd get the results and then I'd email them around to about 100 people at Microsoft. Kind of like doing a tweet now. I left Microsoft. I went to work for Steve Jobs at Next for a couple of years. While I was at Next... Uh, The internet was invented on next machine, And then when I came back to Seattle, I went to work for Paul Allen, who I'd gotten to know when he bought the Trailblazers. So I wrote him a long history of the Trailblazers in Portland, and I started going to Blazer games with him. And then he asked me to come work for him in 1993. And the idea was he had kind of predicted that there would be a world, what he called the wired world. The internet didn't exist yet. There was just sort of CompuServe and Prodigy and a little bit of AOL. And he had predicted it would all happen, and he wanted me to run a company for him that would bet on it and build things for it, and he would fund it, and I would
2: run it. I got hired in the fall of 1993 to basically run StarWave's sports publishing efforts, and... You know, the job was to work with the folks out there and figure out what it meant to create a consumer-facing business around sports that fit the way that StarWave saw the world changing over the near-term future. And StarWave was kind of founded on these notions that Paul Allen had, that the way that people use technology, the role that computers were going to play in their lives, were going to change dramatically over the near-term future. And the drivers of those change would be that folks would have access to a growing capacity in terms of the bandwidth that the, the machines themselves were going to become a great deal more powerful and that computers were going to be networked together.
9: So Starwave was a joint venture set up by Paul Allen and it originally was set up to focus on floppy disks.
0: We did some dumb things. We did a CD-ROM title about Clint Eastwood and one with the Muppets and we did interactive TV prototypes and all sorts of things that didn't really work. But the first idea I had that I pitched him was we should do the world's largest sports section and a completely always-on interactive video and text and picture sports section. And I pitched it to him in 1993 and it took him like five seconds to say yes because he was as much of a sports fan as
2: I was. We were relatively late to the party in terms of building CD-ROMs around sports. Microsoft had entered into exclusive deals with both the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball to complete these terrific products that very few people ultimately used. So we kind of got pushed into developing online services around what we believe to be these emerging next generation platforms simply because the deals weren't there to produce CD-ROMs which would have ended up being disastrous. We built a prototype in
0: 1994 that was a visual basic program running just our own internal server and what it did was it let you parse the sports ticker feed so you could click on it and say baseball statistics Wednesday box scores and you'd get all the box scores for Wednesday and to my knowledge that's the first time anybody had ever done that in the history of the world for any kind of feed and so that was a huge revelation for us and we were kind of waiting for these next generation online services to come about so we had an engineer who thought it would be a great idea to just build the website and try it and so I pitched Paul on just doing the whole thing as a website because it was open and it actually was available even though not many people were using it yet and there weren't really any rules and there wasn't a gatekeeper you could do whatever you wanted basically and paul said okay and we built this prototype called satchel
2: sports satchel was because of satchel page so we took satchel live on november 1st ninety-four. And almost immediately, like a couple thousand people looked at it the first day and were like, well, this is kind of cool. At the same time that was going, we had started a kind of a business development kind of strategic partnership conversation in early 1994 with some people at ESPN. I said to Paul
0: Allen early on. It probably wasn't going to work to do sports without a partner because of the rights issues that were already apparent then but were going to come as video became more important. So I pitched Sports Illustrated, and they kind of blew us off. And then I pitched ESPN. And I pitched this guy named Dick Glover, who ran ESPN Enterprises then, and his job was just to make money. He licensed DVDs, toys, you know, you name it, he licensed it.
10: Starwave was building CD-ROM products and just like we were, they were also kind of intrigued by the internet and starting to work on it, especially Microsoft. Microsoft was developing Internet Explorer browser and a couple other things. Eventually, we decided we really liked the Starwave people. We felt like their culture was the same as ESPN. And we knew at ESPN that we really knew sports, and we knew sports content, and we knew how to speak to sports fans, but we sure didn't know technology. That was not a strong suit at all.
2: They had launched a branded service with Prodigy on April 1st, 1994. But they knew fairly quickly on that that was not the long-term future. Prodigy was incredibly limited in terms of what they could offer them. In fact, before they even launched Prodigy, they started having conversations with us about what form a partnership might take. And we basically negotiated on and off throughout 1994 and all the way into early 95.
10: We had the deal with Prodigy, but we knew that Prodigy deal was a one-year deal. And we then met with StarWave. And then started to negotiate a deal.
0: So Dick said, "We'd love to do a deal with you. We really like you guys. We we think the same way. But we have to have two and a half million bucks a year. I can't go backwards on this deal. It made me look bad." And I said, "Okay." So I went to Paul, and Paul was kind of hesitant to do the deal because he just didn't see why he needed to have a partner. You know, his Microsoft upbringing was kind of like, "Who needs partners? We can do it all ourselves." Finally, at the last minute, to sweeten the deal, Glover says, okay, ESPN had just started doing this thing called The Crawl. The Crawl was twice an hour. The bottom eighth of the screen would get taken over by a little ticker that had all the scores going by. It was called the 2858 internally. And it was a big controversy because it took up some of the screen real estate and was considered kind of sacrilege.
10: Advertisers right off the bat said, absolutely not. That cannot be going when a commercial is on. Most production people thought it was really cool. Most fans from the feedback we would get, thought it was cool and it was useful.
0: So Dick said, how about if we put into the 2858 the letters HTTP colon backslash backslash ESPN.SportZone.com and it'll scroll by twice an hour. So we got the deal done, and we realized like a year later, this was like the single most innovative thing anyone
2: has ever done in the history of internet marketing. And obviously we ultimately chose to partner with ESPN and launched fairly soon after the deal was signed.
10: You had these guys at Starwave that were just um, passionate about what they did, smart as a whip, hardworking, big sports fans, married to this phenomenal brand, all this great content. Likewise, hard-working, passionate,
0: smart people, and created a really, really good product. As the Internet became more mainstream, and obviously a thing that wasn't going away, everybody kind of got it. And so once they all got it, ESPN stepped up their investment, and particularly once Skipper got in
8: charge, and
0: they doubled down, which is the right thing to do.
8: So there you have it. The foundation was secured when ESPN and Disney bought StarWave, And from Starwave came such talents as Marie Donahue and Jeff Reese.
6: They definitely set the stage for John Skipper and for John Walsh, who have been building ESPN the magazine, to really start to fulfill this great promise of the Internet with some terrific and very unprecedented sports journalists. In about 2001,
9: when John Skipper came over with John Walsh to RonnieSPN.com, I think absolutely John Skipper came in as a true visionary. He had come, obviously, from the magazine world, and I think he looked at the site largely as... An interactive magazine, and he really forced us to up our game both from a content perspective. We hired more writers, higher quality writers.
11: Rob King, Senior Vice President, Sports Center and News. I grew up in Washington, D.C. As a result, we had a ton of newspapers flowing through the house. Newspapers from Washington, D.C., from suburban maryland from baltimore and i grew up really devouring two parts of the newspaper the comics section because i wanted to be a cartoonist and the sports section damon phillips
12: vice president espn3 and watch espn
11: i grew up in the san
12: francisco bay area in the mid 80s and the way i consumed sports was through the over there channels that we had and the
3: newspaper was my bible I'm Ryan Spoon. I'm senior vice president of our digital product and design. I grew up in DC and opened up the newspaper, the Washington Post, and read the box score and studied them very actively. The Washington Post had a hotline and it was an automated loop of updated sports scores, probably 15 minutes behind with some very short analysis.
9: So we were always a content engine, but John Walsh really brought the newsroom
3: sensibility over to ESPN.com. I'm John A. Walsh, and I have been the executive editor of ESPN editorial content for 27 years at ESPN. Hornstein called us in one day and said, you know, I like the idea you guys did with the magazine, and I think that the internet could use more of a voice. So I said, I know David Halberstam, and he loves sports, so why don't we use him occasionally? I knew Ralph Wiley had a Voice of black American sports fan I called Ralph and said, Ralph, I would really love for you to do this. Ralph said to me, uh, I'll never forget the lunch. He said, I don't know if that still fits with the Ralph Wiley brand. I said, let's think about what you can create.
9: That's when we started hiring investigative writers and longer form writers and folks like Hunter Thompson and David Halberstam. In those days, it really felt like we were producing a new version of a high quality magazine.
3: There was just one article that made everybody stand up and pay attention and that was when 911, 11 happened. Hunter was on his last legs writing, but when 9/11 happened, that got all of his juices flowing, and he wrote this great column, which was very controversial in the office because it wasn't about sports and people didn't want to run it. I called John Skipper and I said, "John, we're running this," and John said, "Absolutely, we're running it," and it got us a lot of attention on the internet. It was the old Hunter coming back to his old form to talk politics and it was fantastic the one column that stood out for hunters four years at dot com page two ESPN was incredibly progressive
5: and forward-thinking in terms of different ways to serve content. It wasn't just about game stories and news. It wasn't just about columns, but it was a different approach to storytelling prior to my starting, but one of the things that absolutely enthralled me about ESPN.com at the time was the launch of Page 2. That was a tremendous risk in one hand, although in retrospect, it was almost a no-brainer to have done, of saying, let's take a different twist on sport and let's marry sport and pop culture. Let's have some varied and controversial voices. Let's embrace debate. If you look at the broader universe of where we sit today, obviously someone like Bill Simmons plays such a key role in page two.
3: This young writer whom I had never heard of named Bill Simmons wrote a column about the 1999 ESPYs, which was not the ESPYs finest show. And he trashed the show in a way and in said, John, you ought to read this. I read the column and it was a totally insulting column to uh, the Espies And I couldn't stop laughing. I was on the floor laughing so hard about it. And so I called Skipper and I said, why don't you give this guy a chance? This is a really young writer and be great to discover a young writer. And so we gave Bill this chance. And it took off from there. That
5: intersection of sport and pop culture and just sports essay writing was really game-changing at the time and I think brilliant foresight among folks like John Wallace from ESPN at the time for launching it.
1: Selena Roberts, former beat writer and columnist at the New York Times... There really was a shift, I think, in the late 90s. That's when I started to notice that ESPN wasn't just televising live events and it wasn't just about sports there. It was about really ratcheting up the competition on the big beats around the country and, and also just about every other beat as well.
4: 2006, I joined Sports Business Journal and we're a weekly magazine that comes out in print and we have a daily that comes out online three times a day.
1: There was kind of a perfect storm that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s and that was technology. That was the internet coming on big and strong and suddenly you realized that it wasn't about posting the story for the next morning's paper. It was posting the story as soon as you could possibly post it online, the immediacy changed, the urgency changed.
4: The idea of keeping a story and trying to hold on to it for a couple of days is anachronistic. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore. When you get a story, you want to get it out as quickly as possible. One of the
1: cascade effects of ESPN.com and its growth is that it began to really broaden what sports was. In many ways, it's followed sort of the cultural tipping points, and I would say that it's really marginalized newspapers, you know, no longer were people looking at the New York Times for the national agenda. No longer were league executives looking at the New York Times and worrying about everything that was in its pages. They were also very concerned about what ESPN was doing. And because ESPN was succeeding, you know, Yahoo Sports really started to crank up. The competition became very national instead of local. And a lot of the newspapers took a step back to that process. So I think that in many ways, the position I was with in the New York Times, you sort of saw it coming. You saw that the newspapers and places like the New York Times and Washington Post and L.A. Times, it wasn't their fiefdom anymore. The digital world had happened. Newspapers did not adjust as quickly and as as with the agility that ESPN could and the resources that ESPN had you know really surpassed what the newspapers could do I left the newspapers and went to Sports Illustrated because I just saw the paradigm shift I do feel that sports has outgrown print and I have gone into film and film development and program development because I saw the shift
8: yep us ESPN.com writers rocked the world of print journalists such as Selena Roberts who like some others now moved herself along with us into the digital realm but ESPN.com was further enhanced by increasing bandwidth and was then able to deliver video
6: and on top of that another major invention that few saw coming talking about the iPhone and handheld devices and once again ESPN steps ahead When we entered the broadband era was when we were finally able to really
9: experiment with video and offer a lot of video.
5: Format-wise, the ability to really aggressively start serving video in the digital space was something that ESPN was at the forefront of. Even when I started, there was one little corner box on the homepage that was called uh, ESPN Motion. And even that was sort of the stunning sense of, I could watch a highlight once a day on the homepage of ESPN.com. I couldn't believe I could access that.
11: Certainly when I went from the first three years of being here in television to ESPN.com where folks here were working on trying to imagine the next redesign. I had an opportunity to join the conversation right when video and storytelling were becoming really central parts of the digital experience.
4: ESPN to me has really been at the forefront of digital. I think that what they did with ESPN.com is far ahead of what other networks did.
12: I joined ESPN in 2008, and before that, I had a startup company called Sports TV Insider. And what we saw at the time was there was this convergence of all this great content being produced, and there weren't a lot of places to put it. As I was looking at that opportunity at Sports TV Insider, I heard about something called ESPN 360, and that was ESPN's broadband sports TV network. And when I heard about this job, I thought, wow. These guys get where the market is going. Fans have an expectation that any game is going to be available somewhere. And ESPN has made that a reality. Back in uh, 08, I joined the company and we had ESPN 360. Now it's called ESPN 3. Uh, we're doing over seven, 8,000 live events on ESPN 3 this year. There is demand and fans have really shown that people
5: want to watch anytime, anywhere. And then obviously the incredible transformation of user behavior from desktop to mobile devices.
9: We always thought mobile would be a hockey stick and take off, and mobile has not disappointed. It's over about 60% of our online consumption now. So the growth has been staggering.
11: I hope everybody who gets asked to reminisce about the last seven years of ESPN.com, and certainly the full 20 years, talks a lot about John Zare. The stretch of growth that we've seen, certainly over the last three years, John saw seven years ago. His vision and belief that audiences would change dramatically and their behavior would adapt to technology was truly out ahead. You know, when we learned that there was content that people would consume in a handset, and that if we could only figure out a way to produce that content as quickly as people would expect to have it, that set in motion a ton of things that informed what we did on the website, collecting video and distributing video, thinking about what kind of business models we could create. John's vision and the people who worked with John were really important to our growth over that time.
4: The amount of times you walk through a restaurant and there's somebody with an iPhone on the table with a watch ESPN on and showing the basketball game, you see it much more often now than you did a couple years ago, and it seems to be something that's increasing in popularity every year.
1: You can be on a train from New York City to Connecticut, which I'm on quite a bit, and watch people around you. They're watching programming on their phone. That technology is really fascinating because wherever they are, They can really get a great story. There really are no boundaries to to how you can distribute and how you can give stories to people all over the world. And the ability to bring audiences great discovery of sports that they don't see much, whether it's cricket or, you know, in some cases, really until just recent years, you know, soccer for a lot of people in in the States. Maybe it's horse racing in India. All these kind of things that really were cut off from everybody because of you know, the lack of technologies now, the door's wide open.
11: Audiences expect every app to work immediately. They expect to see a live stream of every game. They expect to hear directly from the athletes. I think sports fans have even greater aspirations. They want to talk to a player. They want to play around the golf with Tiger Woods. They want greater access.
4: Social media for athletes is a little bit of a double-edged sword. There there have been so many that have gotten in trouble with the things that they've tweeted or posted on Instagram or Facebook. But for me, it's an opportunity for athletes to cut out the middleman and speak to their fans directly. There are several athletes like LeBron James who do that really, Kobe Bryant's another one, they do that really effectively.
11: I mean, all you have to do is look at how LeBron James interacts with his audience through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as opposed to how Michael Jordan did.
4: What
2: Twitter represents is the fact that on a fundamental basis, it's always been more fun to watch sports together than to watch them all. Whether we're, we're together at a game or whether we're gathered with friends in a living room or at a bar, it's just more fun to watch together. And what these social platforms have allowed fans to do, it means that now I can watch sports together not just with my friends or people I know, but I can watch with my favorite commentators or my favorite athletes or my favorite celebrities. What's happening now is is the idea that you can kind of gravitate and find conversations that are much more specifically kind of tuned to the way you want to watch the game. If it's a stat head conversation, you can find it. If it's a partisan conversation about our team is great and your team sucks, we can find that. It's added a dimension to watching live sports that's incredibly fun, And the networks are figuring that out, and now they're starting to program their own secondary social soundtracks, whether it be through Megacast or what Turner did around the Final Four last year.
9: I think we tend to get our traffic from two sources. One is ESPN, and one is just the internet, particularly social in general. People on the internet particularly are open. As long as it's good content, they don't limit themselves so much that, oh, it's a sports site, I should only get sports. I mean, we found that with Grantland. Grantland covers reality TV as if it's a sport, and has amazing film reviews, and pop culture references, and things like that. I think, you know, just because you're a big Boston Red Sox fan doesn't mean you might not want to see the new Marvel movie and read about it. So I think the internet has, in addition to democratizing content, it's also opened people's eyes that we don't have to always be in such narrow lanes in what we produce and what we cover.
10: We've gone from fans consuming sports to fans creating sports.
9: The TV is the
10: second screen now.
2: The internet is the first screen. Twitter is a first screen bar none this is the most exciting time it's ever been to be a sports fan the level of access we have to both live events and highlights and conversation and analysis about any sport that we could possibly want to watch is literally unprecedented whether it's international football or cricket or F1 or NBA basketball or Major League Baseball and the advent of ESPN.com played a role in that in terms of helping folks be able to connect with the sports and the teams and the players that mattered most to them
8: let's continue with that theme never been a better time to be a sports fan Uh, jamel this espn.com that we now know has been a long time coming but in one sense hardly any time has passed at all to experience such a significant sea change when it comes to the merging of sports with technology
6: and all within our own lifetimes too mike Okay, let's wrap it up now with some thoughts from some folks in the program who told us about the last 20 years with their vision of what the next 20 years might look like for sports fans.
2: As much as I might make the pitch to say that this is the greatest time ever to be a sports fan, it doesn't mean that we've come close to kind of exhausting the possibilities of what it means to be a fan. We're scratching the top of the personalization
3: story, all of us. As technology improves, as data improves, as we collectively embrace some of the things that will enable this, sensors, wearables, VR,
2: personal experiences will only become more intimate. Over time. We are in the most nascent stages right now of understanding, for example, what it means to apply VR, virtual reality technology to mass public consumption. So what's it like to sit courtside for an NBA finals game is an experience known to like Spike Lee and 138 other people. That's something that actually is going to be experienced in the home inside the next 15 years.
1: I would guess that in the future is that we would look back and say, wow, I can't believe people actually wrote blogs back then, because it'll be all video. I think in in a sense, it's a little bit dangerous because uh, you don't want to lose the written word, but slowly but surely, I think we're moving in the direction of just filmmaking for the masses.
10: I think one of the big,
1: big things
10: that we're going to see in the next couple of years is the democratization of high production quality. It used to be the access fans and bloggers, they wanted access to teams or leagues. We want to be treated as equals.
2: As cool and great and as wondrous as it might be right now, just as we've been sitting here talking about how incredibly rude and crude and primitive 1995 feels, I think that if we were having this conversation 20 years from now, we'd be laughing about what we thought was cool in 2015.